Hello, and welcome to episode 17 of the Catching Up Podcast. This is the show where I catch up with my friends, and they catch me up on elements of pop culture. I am your host, Alex Ruff, and joining me today is Matt Squeebie-Jeebies Webster. That's some groovy intro music, man. Thank you. It comes with the program I used to record. Oh, man. So much (laughs) better than the air horns, I gotta say. Yeah. uh, Past guest Carl told me that it's really annoying to listen to that at the start of every episode. It was funny the first three times. And then I sat down and I was like, oh, you know what? That actually is very annoying. <laughs> like it hurts my ears whenever I accidentally click on my own podcast. <laughs> That's the way he wanted it, though. Yeah. That's a, it was an artistic choice. It was a dare for people to actually listen. <laughs> if you want to listen to this and get the golden nuggets out of it, you got to sit through the air horns. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's that how time. you know it's good. See, if people will listen to this, even with the air horn, that's how you know it's good. Yeah. I can't believe I thought that was a good idea. Now, like in hindsight, makes so much sense. <laughs> that's the charm. I don't, I don't, it's, it's part of the charm. It's yeah, the, it's got slowly but surely I'm getting better at doing this. But thank you, Matt, for joining me. No, that's great. I almost had to reschedule today because I'm sick or die, like getting a cold. And so we have all sniffles when I record. But I'm going to do it. I'm going to power it through. Well, I appreciate your uh, your hard work. Thank you. Thank you, friend. So, what topic did you bring to discuss today, my friend? Uh, uh, I was supposed to bring a topic? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, this one, it's a topic that I feel very strongly about in many directions. And mm-hmm. really, I chose it because... Well, I'll go ahead and get it out of the way. Quentin Tarantino. Uh, I mean, he's a genius director, controversial, and I love him. No bones about it. But I have a lot of conflicting feelings. And I wanted to hammer him out with you. Yeah, I'm ready. This is this is one of the podcasts when my friends say, let's do it. I go, oh, yeah, instantly. This is an easy topic. I have to do very little research. I think I watched one and a half of his movies just to, get, to prep yeah, for this. I mean, if... Watching Kill Bill is considered research. I mean, really? Yeah. That's that's a no-brainer. If that's what you have to do for work, you got it made. Yeah. I watched half of Death Proof, and I watched Jackie Brown. Two movies I've only seen, I think, maybe two times. I watched Jackie Brown for the first time, quasi-researching for this. Uh, yeah. I loved it. I, a lot of people say it's not their favorite Tarantino movie, but I thought it was excellent. The whole reclaiming black exploitation. Thing that he was doing i appreciate then again you always get into the problem of you know do we really want a white director doing that that's true but i think it worked i think yeah pam greer is great in it absolutely it's perfect what a strong female lady that he casts again it's like joss whedon without the infidelities oh yeah <laughs> what a sad day on the internet for that day I know, well, really. all the nerds were like oh no that would be a good podcast too uh, yeah. But getting back to Tarantino, I just got to ask you, favorite scene, all Tarantino movies. Okay, I was trying to think of my favorite scenes, and there's so many. I think the most iconic one is the Samuel Jackson, like Ezekiel 25 speech. It's one of my favorites. But I think, honestly, my favorite is the scene in Inglorious Bastards when they order... Uh, the drinks, and he uses the wrong three on his hand. Oh man, those little details! I, yeah, I love it. It's brilliant. It's it was such a great moment of like tension, and like you knew it was coming, but you also you knew something was wrong. But at that time, I did not know like Europeans counted the three that way. So I was like, "What's what's what happened? What's wrong?" And so but I was really else, intrigued. By everyone that. else knew immediately. Yeah, and it's and it kind of he isolates you. With Fassbender, like you don't know what's going on, but you know it's it's all doomed. Yeah, that movie is a weird thing with tension where they're like talking about nice things, but you know, like there's something bubbling on, like everyone's so scared, and you know, just like yeah, talking yeah. about strudel is like so terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I've never been so afraid of dessert. <laughs> like, <laughs> you gotta wait for the cream. <laughs> I just yeah. gotta, gotta get out of here. I think. That's the thing that he does so well is trap you 
mm-hmm. uh, either, either in a warehouse with reservoir dogs or the basement, you know, ale house in Germany or they were in France, I guess. Yeah. They, he traps you in this small space and he gets you there and he makes you squirm. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's almost like a master of horror. Uh, yeah. you know, he is, I think, in addition to other things, which is what makes him so versatile and so iconic. Yeah, so what was the first Quentin Tarantino movie that you saw? First one I ever saw was Pulp Fiction. Uh, and that, I think maybe because it was the first that I saw and it you know, kind of opened that door to me, that's still my favorite Tarantino movie is Pulp Fiction. The characters in it are just so well-crafted and well-acted. Samuel L. Jackson is great in it. The Ezekiel speech, you know, I could put that on. I could put that at the <laughs> intro to like a, a hype CD and it would just work. It, it was on the actual soundtrack, like you could on a CD. So I, I did burn a CD and I put that Ezekiel quote right before like a song. I wish I could remember what song it was. <laughs> but I was like, oh, this is so fun. Yeah, I uh, kind of feel like a badass just just listening to it. Yeah, it made going to Catholic school like pretty cool. I was always excited for that that prayer. Like <laughs> 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 I'd look it up. Uh, I feel like I missed out on that little world. I didn't get to go. To, I had to go to a cheap public school. Got ripped when, off. <laughs> when I was like a teenager, I randomly bought like the collector's edition. Of Reservoir Dogs, even though I've never seen any Quentin Tarantino movie. And so my mom was like, oh, well, before you watch that, you should watch this movie. It's this really good one. And she gave me Pulp Fiction. And she goes, be careful when you watch it. Pay close attention to everyone's costumes or you'll get lost. And I was like, mom, I've seen movies before. I understand this. And I was like, oh, there's different it's, things are happening at different times. Like, it, yeah, it so blew my little they walk mind. into the bar. Before they have to get their clothes changed because they, they blow that kid's head off uh, and you know have to clean out the car, they walk into the bar wearing mm-hmm. flip-flops and shorts. Everybody else is you know, kind of dressed up. It's a nice bar with full of gangsters. <laughs> and I, I was lost the first time I watched it. I was yeah. so confused about what was going on. I was like, wait, didn't I just see these guys walk into like an apartment building? Why are they in the background now? And like t-shirts. But thank goodness my mom gave me that warning or I don't think I would have liked that movie. I see. I, my parents were a lot more strict. I, I don't think my mom would let me watch it even today. I'm almost 30 years old. (laughs) I have no idea why my mom did let me see that movie. She was so good. Yeah. She was a cool lady. Shout out to my mom. You're not listening. You still don't know what a podcast is. Hey, uh, shout out to your mom too. Yeah. She'll know what it means. Yeah. <laughs> so I was rude and I didn't ask you your favorite scene. Does your favorite scene in Quentin Tarantino come from your favorite movie, Pulp Fiction, or a different movie? Uh, I mean, there's so many to choose from, but I my personal favorite is probably the opening scene of Inglorious Bastards from you know the uh, opening shot of the yeah movie. yeah. So the French countryside, and he drives up and just sets up Colonel Londa in a way. Uh, Christoph Waltz blew my mind in two minutes. You know, I've mm-hmm. never, I've never seen something so chilling and interesting. I mean, it's almost Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. Meets Sherlock Holmes. Like, and it's somehow it's so again, like we said, Inglorious Bastards getting a lot of play in the first 10 minutes, but it's a tense scene and they're not, they're just asking for milk. And you know yeah. something's weird. He, he just downs it. He chugs it. It's so weird and off-putting. And he he pulls out a pipe. Like, Do you mind if I smoke? And he pulls out even a bigger <laughs> pipe. Like it's like it's funny, just, and it's like yeah. So it's it's it made me laugh, but also I'm scared for him. I'm scared yeah. for that French guy, whatever his name was. It's just a. I came into that movie in theaters late, so I didn't know what was happening. I walked like right in the middle of that scene. Ripped yourself off, man. Oh, okay, <laughs> like, you got to see. Yeah. Like I saw like the middle of it and I was like, what is happening? What is the setup here? You feel and like you I, missed something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I felt like that and I was there for the whole thing. So yeah. Feel- uh, what a good movie. He, and he surprisingly makes, relevant. It, it's <laughs> more and more relevant as days go by, which is upsetting. Yeah. I mean, I thought 
when it came out, I was like, do we really need another film where we defeat fascism? And it turns out, maybe. (laughs) It is a movie that has grown, I think, with time. Like, the first time I watched it, I thought, like, oh, that was pretty good. That wasn't really what I was expecting. And then every time I watch it, you pick up more and more things. Like, the first time you watch it, you think, man, Brad Pitt is, like, sucking. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously fake Southern accent. Yeah, like you're like, why is he doing this horrible? He's an act, good actor, right? Like I started doubting good. it. I started doubting if he was good. It's like, what is he doing? And then two and a half hours in, it's all for a joke when he tries to speak Italian. Riva <laughs> Darchi, <laughs> like, this Bob whole thing has been like walking us down down the hall, and at the end, it's just Riva Darchi. <laughs> like I think if you were an actor, you would have to have like supreme faith in the director to make that stance. He looks like an idiot the whole movie and it was just for a joke. Like you'd have to have such faith that that movie is actually going to be good. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I wonder getting a script like that, how you see it coming together. Because if you tell, I mean, if you told me, all right, well, we're going to have a group of American Jews go into Nazi Germany, kill a bunch of Nazis and then kill Hitler and end the war. I'm like, that's just goofy. Why would you even make yeah. that movie? But then you say, oh, by Quentin Tarantino. I'm like, all right, sure. Yeah, I'll see that. So I read this thing about that movie. And apparently when they were filming, I think they were actually filming in Paris or like somewhere in France. And that small town actually had a Quentin Tarantino themed bar. No and, way. And he found out about it like the month, like they had like two months off the shooting. And so he would go there every night with the whole cast and crew and they were just like party it up with these weird people who just loved his movies. Oh, wow. That is, I guess he made a lot of people happy, but that also sounds really narcissistic. Doesn't it? Like, <laughs> That's amazing. Like, it would be so fun to own a bar like that. And then all of a sudden you're like, what? What are you doing? The guy like, himself. Yeah. So I think we should kind of talk about each movie, maybe from the beginning, kind of towards the end. I think most people have seen all of the movies. This way we can actually touch on everything instead of just kind of jumping back and forth, which I'd, I'd love to do, but I got to be a relatively good host. Okay. So should we, how much should we set up the scenes? Should we just assume all the listeners have seen it? Ah. I mean, it's worth seeing. So like if you haven't seen Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, Django Unchained, and Glorious Bastards, just go watch them. You know, yeah. pause the podcast, go watch them because it's worth whatever 14 hours that would be. Yeah, it's definitely, I think all of his movies are all at least worth one watch. Just for the artistic, like, weird thing that he's going to do with it. Especially if you love movies. Even if you mm-hmm. don't, don't love Quentin Tarantino, if you love movies, it's almost like watching a reel of Inside Jokes where he takes famous shots and plasters them on the screen and then somehow weaves them together into a coherent film. It's it's really fun watching an old movie and then coming back to a Tarantino movie and seeing that he is ripped off played mm-hmm. or perhaps paid homage to that shot. There, I actually randomly watched this movie called High Noon from the 50s. And Django Unchained is straight up ripped off the exact camera work from like his hip down. Like it's just like a weird thing that's like, oh, that's just I've already seen this before. It's a fun like scavenger hunt for good movies. Absolutely. Okay, so do you want to start? Do you want to do chronological or do you want to? I think chronological because it kind of sh- it's like an evolution kind of thing. I think yeah, it also, yeah. these were back when he was still doing like independent movies. Like he was an up and coming director for Reservoir Dogs. Like he didn't he finance, finance that like himself or something weird, indie stuff like that. Uh, yeah, he started out, I mean, it pretty much broke <laughs> making Reservoir Dogs. Uh, uh are you talking about like his old like my best friend's birthday like way I've never seen it but I've that was his first yet. credit I think so Reservoir Dogs yeah it it was like his debut movie it was like a hit at like Sundance or something that's how he got on the map but it was a, so it was good a, I think it was a hit at Cannes as well the like all the film festivals were a buzz for this little Quentin Tarantino guy as nobody. Um, (laughs) So like, here's a question. Do you know what the opening scene of Reservoir Dogs is? It's the diner scene. Right. The no tipping. And the, uh, 
Like a virgin. Yeah, so uh, most people, myself included, if you watch it once, you'll remember this uh, uh, opening, almost a monologue, where uh, Steve Buscemi as Mr. Pink uh, gives this whole philosophy on um, why you shouldn't tip and why Mm -hmm. he never tips waitresses. And it turns out this is actually Quentin Tarantino's personal philosophy, um, or at least it was at the time. Which is hilarious, disgusting, but whatever. So, but it actually starts with, like you said, the like a virgin thing with uh, Quentin Tarantino playing Mr. Brown. And uh, it's this really misogynistic and vulgar and kind of boring monologue that no one really takes any interest in. And it's like a false start, you know, and then they have to restart the movie. And then Mr. Pink comes in with this really interesting and controversial take on tipping. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, I kind of love picking that up because I don't know why I think it, I think it's just showing that I, I think it sets Mr. Pink up to be one of the more shrewd and uh, aware characters, if not wholesome. Yeah. He, he is aware that he is a cr- criminal. Like he he knows exactly who he is as a person as a character, and, and he that's knows why the he, people around him too. Yeah, that's why he doesn't tip, and that's why he has that good scene later in the movie where he was like, "For all I know, you're the fucking rat." Yeah. Like he he's the only person who's like skeptical of everybody, yeah, which is what yeah appropriately, and he in the end wins because of his skepticism. Yeah, and so and this kind of brings me to one of my first problems uh, with Tarantino. And that's where Mr. Pink uh, is in the car with some of the other uh, Reservoir Dogs and the gang. Uh, And he kind of just reveals that he is horribly bigoted and racist because his uh, co-workers, so to speak, they're arguing and fighting and uh, not giving ground or or compromising with each other. And he says, Mr. Pink says to them, you guys need to stop. You're acting like a bunch of N-words. Uh, I'm not going to repeat it. Yeah. But, I mean, so here is Mr. Pink, this professional gangster, and around him are what he calls the N-word. And they they all get, you know, I guess, spoiler like offended. <laughs> well, they, they yeah, all, so, in the scene, they all get like offended because aren't they trying to decide where they're going to eat at? Isn't it something dumb like that? I mean, well, or, it's, it actually happens a couple of times. Okay, yeah. Uh, but I, I don't. I guess I don't remember if they get offended or not. But I think the problem for me is that uh, at the end, Mr. Pink survives. Everyone else gets shot because they're unwilling to to work with each other. And so, I mean, what's the message there if 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 Mr. Pink says this? And then uh, Tarantino writes the script so that everything t- that Mr. Pink says comes true. I think that's kind of problematic. I mean, I think it perpetuates a stereotype that Mr. Pink has brought up. Uh, and, and furthermore, I think, you know, the fact that Pink has uh, already espoused one of Tarantino's personal philosophies on tipping, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's already a, a voice. Ah, that's you know, an mean, interesting point. Is this is the if the banter is represented that Quentin Tarantino has in his real life? That's represented in in his movies. You know, how, I I just I question if if he uses that word similarly, or if he's writing a racist character with his eyes open and accidentally set up all of these events in a way that makes this racist uh, seem shrewd instead of bigoted. Yeah. I- Mr. Like Reservoir Dog is like a weird movie for that because it's like we weren't at a time we weren't as woke, but at the same time we also weren't supposed to, like everyone still knew. Yeah. <laughs> you're not supposed to say that. Don't be racist. Yeah, yeah. don't say everyone the n word. Yeah, everyone knew not to be racist and say the n word. Like now that would never fly. But at this, it's a weird thing to imagine that the racist guy wins because like yeah the, he's like the anti-hero of the movie in a way yeah the maniac he dies the the cop dies like it 
the whole movie is like a, a play on crime tropes and a bank robbing movie where you don't even see the bank being robbed. Yeah. And I, well, the, day, the hardened you, criminal. You do. Died. So, like, actually, you see the bank robbed. And it's worth noting, I think that the waitress and the woman in the bank that gets shot. So, so we are the only women in the film. So, women are around long enough to get stiffed and then get shot. So, we're. We're kind of off to a bad start as far as wokeness for yeah. Mr. Tanty. <laughs> yeah, his I was trying to figure this out how cuz his foot fetish thing is like a big like open secret kind of thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I was trying Which to is, think how it's it's weird, weird but it's not I guess I wouldn't yeah. call it a strike against him. No, it's just like it's once you notice it you can't unsee it. Unsee it, right. <laughs> but I was trying to think about like the women characters that he he does, and he doesn't like. He does create these like strong. Women. I think he got better at it. I think honestly, I, I don't know if this is really my overarching point, but I have this feeling that he gets better at uh, bringing up race inequality in America and writing strong female characters that don't just get shot, die first. Two seconds of I think time. he I think he does too because as time goes on they kind of get more fleshed out too like their whole thing like and the like in in Glorious Bastards Shoshana actually kills Hitler yeah like that's like <laughs> not even one of the Inglorious Bastards kills her of like a French woman kills him I think they both so like the the bastards shoot him and like. Oh yeah, I guess they, they, they shoot get, him so they get many the times. Kill, but like, yeah. <laughs> but Shoshana kills everyone. Yeah, all of the Nazis in the theater. All the entire like hierarchy of the Third Reich is gone because of mm. this this French woman who was. I mean, she was willing to burn with them to get him. So I yeah, mean, I think that's really it shows and, how far he's come from you know a waitress and a bank teller. And Jackie Brown is the only person who plans ahead in that movie. Yeah, I couldn't even keep up with Jackie Brown. So, like, <laughs> she's, yeah, she's she's amazing. She's two steps ahead of everybody. Yeah. Okay, so right, I so think he does kind of get better, and then he gets kind of worse with the N word. But yeah, especially <laughs> at least more prolific. He does get know. a lot more prolific about it. There's there's a lot to be said there. Do you want to move on to Pulp Fiction? Sure, I think this is the most. I'm not is, skipping anyone. No, yeah, I think Reservoir Dogs is like a tight crime movie. It's good. Yeah. It's better every time I watch it, but I, I don't think it's like groundbreaking. Like literally, the next movie is. Yeah, like I, um, I don't think Hollywood would be the same without Pulp Fiction. Yeah, absolutely, it it changed the game. I think if it were, they, they kind of got gumped, you know, mm-hmm. at the awards. They, oh, yeah. I think he got best. Uh, original screenplay, but yeah. you didn't get any other awards for the movie. But if it weren't for Hollywood being in love with Forrest Gump, I think that really would have won Best Picture that year. Yeah, it, it really should have won. And for an indie film, like it was a yeah. Miramax film, it was a pretty low budget. It had some big names, uh, but that's not the kind of movie you expect to win Best Picture but it's that good that it really probably should have. That is true because it, it is a much better movie. I don't know. Forrest Gump is a weird movie. <laughs> it's it's not, it's not good. I watched it it's funny. when I was in college and I was like, this is all the, what's cracked up to be. This is a weird movie. Okay, uh, it's very, it's very weird. I, I thought it was funny, but not like special. So I do love Tom Hanks. Yeah. Tom Hanks can be in anything. All right. So, what makes Pulp Fiction great, though? It's hard to put your finger on because it's this huge amalgamation of genres. It's mm-hmm. got, it's got you know, crime. Uh, it's, I don't know what it is. It has the like characters a weird... are larger than life. Yeah. Um, really, I think what holds it together is the writing, the dialogue, especially Quentin Tarantino's ability to make unbelievable characters seem real. With just, I guess, I guess they're hot takes on on uh, like the foot massage conversation about it, whether or not it is 
worth throwing a man out of a building mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> for giving your wife a foot massage. Well, I still remember, like, I know people that went to France, like, after this movie, and they were just, like, they even went to McDonald's just to see if it was really called a Royale with cheese. I assumed it was. Yeah, and I mean, it's true. They're, but, like, it's it was so indebted in our pop culture, like, the way um, Jules and Vincent talk to each other is just how, like, every... 20-something, like, pop culture fanatic talks to each other. That's the thing he does well with these movies. It's the banter that I wish I could have. Yeah. It's a little bit smarter than I am, you know? I, I don't, I'm not as witty as they are. And But it's the kind of banter between friends and colleagues that is believable, but just out of reach, and makes you kind of want to be those characters in a way. You know, uh, Tarantino actually wrote the script for Pulp Fiction in Amsterdam. So it might be, that, that might be why, uh, you know, Vince, Vince Vega is, uh, his character has that opening scene. Or I guess it's not the, the openings in the diner, but that's his scene. His first scene. Oh yeah. The opening is the bank robbery thing. Honey, bunny. The, yeah. Honey, bunny. It, you're right though. It, it does. It is an amalgam of all these different genres. Like it literally is, it's like a, a mafia movie about like rigging sports and Bruce Willis is like a sports hero. And it's also like a buddy cop movie with Vincent Vega and Samuel L. Jackson. It's like a, it's like a weird room, like a natural born killers romance thing that he does later with, uh, with honey bunny and whatever his name actually is pumpkin. Tim Roth is in it again. Yeah. Like so, it's just like this weird sort of thing where it goes all, it goes through everything and all their stories do, connect but they also don't necessarily need to if that makes any sense like there you could watch right. each story as its own and be just as engaged absolutely each story could be a movie uh in a different genre and somehow he makes them all come together in a in a way that if not believable is at least uh entertaining so i but i think that really is who he is mm-hmm. not just as a director but a, as a movie a cinemaphile Mm-hmm. He he just loves every movie. I've heard, can't confirm, but I've heard his favorite movie of all time is Rio Bravo. So like, uh, I want to say late fifties western. I've not seen it, uh, so hopefully he doesn't that doesn't get back to him. <laughs> <laughs> you are correct. Rio Bravo came out nineteen fifty nine. Fifty nine. So I mean, and it's a Hawks Hawks directed it. I think so. Yeah. Um, you know that's his favorite movie, and one of another one of his favorite movies is Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Uh huh. So like those two movies couldn't be further apart. Yeah. But I think when you know that, it all kind of makes sense. Where uh, we've got this hilarious movie in Pulp Fiction that in the middle of it or towards the end of it, there's like this horribly graphic rape and murder scene with uh uh. Marcellus Wallace getting yeah. raped by Zed. I mean, so he's like hyper-violent horror uh, meets Abbott and Costello hilarious slapstick where uh, uh, Bruce Willis goes upstairs to find a weapon and he's just one after the other finding a more deadly and badass weapon and picks up a chainsaw at one point, yeah. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's so weird. And it can only work, I think, with Tarantino. It's very weird to like laugh at a scene where you know someone's gonna die, but then Samuel Jackson goes, "Hmm, this is a tasty burger." Like, what? Well, like, so- <laughs> right? And then he just drinks all of his Sprite. I was, yeah. <laughs> I was so mad for Brett in that scene. I should have saved himself. It didn't matter; he was dying anyway. The good old Big Kahuna is like a. It comes. <laughs> Don't back you wish much. that existed too? I do. We should make it. That's we the should. next thing. After podcasts. After, After you make your first million on podcasts. Welcome Burgers. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I bet we could, because like, uh, it comes up in Reservoir Dogs, Big Kahuna Burgers does. Oh, it does? Mr. It's been a while. Mr. Black, Mr. whoever Michael Madsen is, he comes in drinking a Big Kahuna cup. 
Oh, nice. Yeah, it's that's cool. It's There's weird. a weird continuity too that we can talk about. Yeah, the Vega brothers. Who's the Who's the other one? Vincent Michael Tone. Madsen. Michael Madsen. Oh, and Tom- I didn't know he was a Vega. Okay, that's yeah. really cool. And wow. so they were they were going to make a movie about it, but then he decided, no, nah, I'm going to write Jackie Brown instead. Which brings us, I think, to the next movie, right? Yeah, there you go. What What did you think about Jackie Brown for watching it for the first time? So yeah, I watched it for the first time a couple nights ago. Uh, I I loved it. I thought it was great. Um, so I have I haven't had a lot of experience with black exploitation films, mm-hmm. um, but you can immediately recognize it. I mean, yeah, the 110th Street opening. Uh, with what's that actress's name? Pam Greer. Pam Greer uh, as Jackie Brown. Um, you you already you don't have to be very familiar with it to know this is black exploitation genre mm-hmm. kind of. Again, I, I don't know if it's being ripped off or it's being paid homage to homage homage whatever. He does um, love that fine line between ripping off and homage. Like it's a. I don't know where that line actually is and why he doesn't get in trouble for it more. But I, uh, I, I think most people, if they have a criticism, it's his use of racial slurs. Mm-hmm. And then behind, right behind that is, oh, well, he doesn't do anything original. It's all just reprocessed. And my, I mean, my counterpoint to that is, yeah, he's taking famous shots, but he's making them into a quilt. And making them into something new and unrecognizable from the first product. And I don't think that's ripping off. I think that's very creative. I, in my senior year of college, I just needed credits. So I took the history of being hip, which is a great so class. Yeah. <laughs> that's where you got it. Oh, man. Yeah. And so my teacher talks about John Coltrane did uh, a song called My Favorite Things. It's just like the sound of music. These are some of my favorite things. It's that same melody, except he explains, my teacher said like, basically what John Coltrane did is he stuck that song inside like a blender and then turned it on 10,000 and left it there and just picked up the remnants and put it together to form a song because Coltrane is like a 13 minute long song that the only similarities is like the like the same rhythm. And that's what I think Quentin Tarantino does. He takes his favorite things. He takes Rio Bravo. He takes Abbott Costello. He puts it in a blender. And this is what he picks up the pieces. And then he puts it back together as Pulp Fiction, as all these movies. Bravo. I think that's a, that's a really good comparison. Um, another thing about, you know, taking this blender. Uh, Quentin Tarantino is also the god of pop culture. Yeah. Especially movies, but I mean, really anything. Um, he could probably tell you who played clarinet on that recording of my favorite things. Uh-huh. John <laughs> I mean, like he's he's pretty spectacularly gifted. Maybe has an eidetic memory, and so you've got if you're gonna have a guy reprocess all of media from you know 1910 to today and make a movie out of it, this is the guy to do it. Yeah, and you can feel that because that's why we've touched on it, but every character in his movies have talked about pop culture. They've talked about movies. Like, his characters are obsessed with movies the way he's obsessed with movies. Like, his Madonna thing in the beginning of Reservoir Dogs is not a typical what people thought the song was actually about. But it's like, it's what would happen if you and your buddies drank, like, a bunch of beer and you guys talked about that song for a a while, then someone would reach that conclusion it's that hot take in their head and yeah comes out with it because i think like i think they quote movies like it's just like a it's a weird there's no movies like it they're all like in the crime genre like even like pam greer i think even says a couple times movies that she was in in the in jackie brown i can't i watched it too recently and there's a time when someone was like holding a book or mention like coffee, and I think that's the movie she was in. I think that's what it's called. But yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing where he he plays this fine little line, and I think he even gets it. He becomes more extreme about it like later in his movies. Yeah, he gets he gets more subtle about it. I mean, in the in the J- Jack Rabbit Slims, yeah, they order like 
the the steak is named after a fifties director, and the burger that uh, Uma Thurman, uh, Mia Wallace orders is you know some fifties character. Never, you know, he's got he's got references just coming bursting out of the scenes mm-hmm. of the movie. If you look in between the frames, you'll see some reference. Now, would you um, rather Kahuna Burger exist or Jackrabbit? Oh Slayer? shit. Uh, probably Kahuna Burger because Jackrabbit Slims. I mean, if it was a five dollar shake back then, you can only imagine. <laughs> That's a good point, actually. It's a and you know that place is expensive. Yeah, you know it. I mean, they got the speedometer dance floor. Like they got a, they got a high overhead in that place. They got to keep the prices up. I don't think I can afford it. <laughs> All right, but Jackie Brown. Um, you know, only only one watch through. Uh, like we've been saying, they're pretty juicy movies, so I'm sure I missed missed a lot. Yeah, um, but my the most impressive thing to me is um, the power of Jackie Brown. She is the scariest person in that movie, and you have Samuel L. Jackson playing uh, Odell, and you know is he's a he's a scary motherfucker to begin with. Playing yeah, a scary gangster character who doesn't bat an eye at murdering someone, and yet this airline stewardess is the most—I mean, the most—the one I respect the most would be the, yeah. the most afraid of. She is the smartest character. She is two steps ahead of everybody. She she outplays Samuel Jackson. Jackson. She outplays the ATF, and she outplays like her romantic friend. The Bailiff oh, yeah. Bondman. That you, Max Cherry. Yeah. Like, she's she's so smart and so much better at this than everybody else is. Like, I didn't realize that, like, when she gives the money to the girl that Robert New York shoots, like, that was on purpose so they would get in trouble for having that money on them because oh, it's yeah. the marked money. Like, I didn't realize that she was just basically – she pocketed all the not marked money. So, yeah, there's this whole the, – the whole conspiracy. I think – uh, what really stuck out to me is Odell talking about uh, whatever the surfer girl's name was. Um, how he he can't trust her, but he can trust that she will be who she is. And if he knows who she is, he can predict what she'll do, and he doesn't really have to worry about her because he can head her off at the pass uh-huh. if need be. And I think Jackie Brown is just all right. Well, I know all of you motherfuckers. And I know exactly what all of you are going to do. So I can just plan out whatever I want and you'll fall wherever I want you to fall. It's, I think it's also one of those like most mystery movies. Like it's straight up. Like he would wanted to make like a whodunit. Yeah. Yeah. Like he was like, you, you're so invested in the actual like money handoff. I was and, so like, the nitty gritty worried. Man, I was so worried something went wrong when she came out and started like hyperventilating. And it yeah. turns out she was just playing the ATF guys, the police. And uh, I, w- I felt like I was watching this plot unfold. Well, I was. But in a, I was so oblivious to how it would actually end up. No, yeah, uh, you're yes. you're completely right. That's how I feel about it. I've, like every time I watch I it, I go, style. oh, yeah, that's, oh, that's what she was doing. I get it. Like every time it dawns on me how the plot is going to unravel as it's doing it. Yeah, it's exactly what uh, I think Guy Ritchie ripped off and tried to make all of his movies like. Yeah. But also spin the camera and do do weird fade outs. I want to say one thing and then we'll talk about bad movies that he's inspired. There's There's a weird connection with Jackie Brown and this podcast. There is. So, the first podcast I did by myself was the John Woo episode with my good friend Anthony. Oh, yeah. And and Jackie Brown, I think I even talked – I don't know if I cut it out or it's actually in the episode. Someone will have to go back and tell me or whatever. I'm not going to listen to it again. But uh, Samuel Jackson's talking about – he's like, man, because all these fucking Hong Kong flicks, everybody wants like this certain type of gun. And the movies I talked about oh, yeah. were the two John Woo movies where he has the twin pistols in his hand. So even like Quentin Tarantino is referring to other movies in his movie, like it's. It just shows you 
where he is in terms of pop culture knowledge. Yeah. He's, he's everywhere. Samuel Jackson has the worst hair I think I've seen a single character oh, ever have. In that yeah, movie. that was that was bad. <laughs> <laughs> that got I think that got some uh, attention. So his hair in Pulp Fiction. Do you know Bell Hooks? Uh, she maybe. Was, she was really. She's like a feminist uh, oh, writer. Yeah. Uh, she does. She's she's the one who does the lowercase name. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, she was like re- hypercritical of his hair in Pulp Fiction, the Jerry curls, uh-huh. which I you know those are also pretty horrendous. Uh, <laughs> that's a style that you know mercifully died out. Uh, and then in Jackie Brown, he's got that straightened, long, skullet-looking thing. Yeah, like in the end, he like undoes part of it. And yeah. It's like a weird, like balding mullet kind of thing. Like it's just I don't this. Know what's going on? And then he's like got the wisp of a beard, <laughs> braided wispy beard in the front. Uh, not a good look. <laughs> he can just chalk it up to like, oh, I, this is something I had to do to get in the film. It's well, that's weird. We haven't talked about this. We've kind of touched on like big things he uh, movies, but he also loves using the same actors over and over again. Oh yeah, and. Um, Samuel Jackson is the perfect example. Tim Roth is in most of his movies. Like they're all, they're like his friends that he keeps bringing back over and over again. I think Christoph Waltz recently. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, so he was talking about that a little bit, how um, in, in an interview I saw, he said, you know, he'll write a movie, cast it. He'll get exactly who he wants for those characters. But then once that happens, He'll start writing a character and it just comes out of his pen where it's that actor being this character and he writes this part that is just for it, for them. So after Inglorious Bastards, he's writing um, Django Unchained and he said in the first drafts, there was never a, uh, a German bounty hunting dentist <laughs> or whatever it was uh, until after Inglorious Bastards when he knew you know, the bottled lightning he had in Christoph Waltz and he just, it just came out where he had to have that, th- this character played by this actor in this script. Yeah. Like I don't think there could have been a different person to play those two characters than Christoph's just yeah, like totally different. Yeah. <laughs> so he just, he's a chameleon, but also has this powerful identity that somehow connects between those two characters. Sorry if I cut you off. No, it's it's just like it's weird seeing Samuel L. Jackson in every single one of his movies and all of his characters it's like testament to Quentin Tarantino's writing is they're all unique and different, but they all feel kind of sim like familiar. Like when you see that him in Hateful Eight, you go like, Oh, I feel like I've seen like a a loud, angry man monologue. Oh yeah, it's pulp fiction. Like it's all this yeah. this weird stuff. Like Tim Roth and Hateful Eight kind of does the same thing he does in Reservoir Dogs. Like, he kind of monologues and pretends he's acting and stuff like that. It's good. I'm excited to see who will be his next little lightning that he finds. I I would also just be happy watching, you know, the Samuel Jackson, Christoph Waltz, Harvey Keitel, Tim <laughs> Roth reunion tour yeah. in the Manson movie, so... He he's he really doesn't make duds. Uh, no, there are some things I think I can take issue with with, but uh, generally his movies are just perfect. Real quick, finishing up on Jackie Brown. Yeah, do you think it's cool that you know we've got this reclamation of black exploitation genre, uh, empowering this black woman to take on? gangsters and the federal government and potential suitors at once and comes out with half a million dollars. Are we okay with Quentin Tarantino being the guy to reclaim (laughs) black female identity? I don't know. It's a weird thing about this is when the movies start getting kind of, you're like, wait a second, is that okay that he's doing that? Because Pam Greer is an icon in the black exploitation, like movement. She's, I mean, she is, uh, I was not 
Foxy, she's Foxy. What's it? When she Foxy, I always think Foxy I always think Brown? Foxy Cleopatra. So it's Foxy Brown, but that's yeah. from Austin Powers, which is another uh, black exploitation ripoff. Thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she is the face. So the fact that he got her to play the part, I think, goes a long way. Uh huh. Um, but personally, thinking about it, I'm okay with anybody doing that as long as it's done right. Um, I think there is an underrepresentation of of black directors in Hollywood, but I'm not gonna. I guess you really can't blame Quentin Tarantino, the director, for that. Yeah. And so it's... the fact that he's making this movie, I don't have a problem with it, but some people do. I'm sure. I could see the problem. I think there are bigger fish to fry. Like you should be more mad at like other productive companies not hiring black female females and stuff like that. Like yeah. I think he I does mean, a good job of representation in his movies to an extent. Like, it's good. Like, he's he's fine. It's not the best, but it's there's also much worse. Yeah. And I, I guess I just, I don't want to hold it against him that he's a, oh, another white dude in Hollywood. Yeah. I mean, we just don't need more. But he is making these great movies, and he is, he's, he's tackling these subjects when no one else it really is. Um, I think, and I think part of that is they, if, if they wanted to, they couldn't get the funding. Um, so that, I mean, that's a problem with Hollywood. That is a problem with Hollywood that yeah. could be a different. Podcast. I feel like but, he clearly um, loved black exploitation movies and that's why so. he made it. Like he, he made the movie out of love. And I think that's different than just making a movie like a soulless movie that just features like people of different ethnicities. Like he loves Pam Greer. So he helped bring her career back for a little bit. Yeah. And, and helped her. Uh, I mean, some people would criticize black exploitation genre, the whole genre as being, you know, perpetuating stereotypes of, yeah. of black people in America. Um, and obviously, Pam Greer didn't feel that way or she wouldn't have starred in, in them. Uh, yeah. But he gave her an opportunity to to really make a statement that this is an empowering thing to have representation in media and to have powerful characters on the screen. So I, I appreciate it. I think it's, I think it's good. I, but it, it, could be, it could be seen as a problem. All right. So moving on from Jackie Brown, we've got Kill Bill. I know that's one of your favorites. It is one of my favorites. It's like a, it's like a, it's a Western ninja movie. Comic book Western ninjas with a huge revenge plot. Yeah, it's kind I don't of think foreboads. It, <laughs> it's so big and so like completely out there. Like like you said, like you couldn't do the funding. I don't think anyone else could do this weird movie. That's uh, that's fair. Like it's like so. it's a cartoon or a video game made played by Uma Thurman. Like the Which, fight, the fight scene else? Like crazy eighty eights. He's just like chopping off limbs, and like comical amount of blood flies out everywhere. Yeah, it's it looks like every Hong Kong kung fu movie mm-hmm. that I've seen. You know, that came out in the seventies. Um, that scene where she's taking on the yakuza. Mm-hmm. She's in the yellow jumpsuit, and she's just yeah. going to town. I mean, it's it's like the thing we talked about homage. She's literally wearing the same thing Bruce Lee wore. Exactly. Was that Big Boss or? I think, yeah, a game of death, maybe. Okay. Oh, they might be the same movie, honestly. (laughs) They're all pretty similar. I think the thing about those movies that make them great is the choreography Mm -hmm. and the, the skill that is on display. Um, And I think, Tarantino gets that. He he choreographs this epic battle between one assassin, the the greatest killer in the world, and 200 teenagers, I guess. And he just, it's like watching a dance, mm-hmm. but with uh, bloody fountains just popping up everywhere. It, it does this cool thing, too, where she goes to a different room, and all of a sudden it's like an all-blue background and just black silhouettes. Like it's just, it's such a yes. fun movie to watch. It's like so. I, it's so. I think I saw, like I watched 
um, some like uh, YouTube video on all the different references that are in his movies, and I I mean you just you can get lost in them. Yeah, you know, that that's that scene was probably cut from somewhere else as well. Um, I think I saw someone do a side by side of the stills. I think so, it, I, yeah, I think it definitely is ripped off by something, but it's it's somehow it's just Matt it's Webster weird, with the hot he, takes. <laughs> Oh yeah, I saw this YouTube video where a thing happened. You're welcome. <laughs> and that's what this whole podcast is. Off the cuff feelings. I pretend that I'm an expert, but really I just have like 17 Wikipedia pages open when I record. That would have been <laughs> smart. I should have done yeah. that. Oh, that's a pro. When you do you know, 17 episodes, you learn how to go to Wikipedia fast without clicking too loudly. Man, uh, I'll learn from the master. All right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so the I've only I've only seen each each of them once, mm-hmm. uh, Kill Bill one and two. It's already gotten to me to the point where anytime I hear Nancy Sinatra's voice, I think yeah. of the the unfortunate wedding. Like he just he does make iconic songs. It's just a it's just such a weird good movie. That whistle. There's a whistle scene oh, where yeah. the nurse whistles. The nurse. That, was, that was taken from, I think it's called M. And it's about a murderer who whistles that song. I'm it's, so, I, it's, a, it's a lot of Easter eggs. Try to, I was digging for why this one in particular for you stands well, out. I love Kung Fu movies. That's always been my weird thing. And I love, I, I, like, I hate to say, it, I love gratuitous violence. Like I do enjoy movies that are like graphic if that makes any sense, like yeah, there's, there's also that line of, you know, if I see a kung fu movie where somebody's arms get ripped off, that's much less chilling than, you know, seeing a, a completely benign scene where a dentist is drilling out a root canal. Like yeah, that gets to me more than the spray of blood from a, <laughs> you know, Uma Thurman chopping off a somebody's head. And it's it's so extreme that I don't take it seriously. It's just like like I said, it does remind me of like playing a video game where right? Uma Thurman has to take off like fight these four bosses to finally get to kill Bill. The the big boss. The, the big boss, yeah. It's it's great. And they helped uh David Carradine launch his career again, like bringing him back, Kung Fu Master himself. He does this weird job where he brings back his old heroes to be in movies. And he's got a lot of them because he yeah. It's the god of pop culture. And so then we have, we touched on a lot of Inglorious Bastards. We did. I don't know how much we need to necessarily go back into it, but do you have any other thoughts on Inglorious Bastards? Uh, I will say that I think we can just kind of use it to transition into Django that I I don't think we've talked a a whole lot about. Um, Where Tarantino has this rewriting history uh, revenge, and he went from the revenge plot that he had, you know, peaked and killed Bill, mm-hmm. um, and then it transitioned into Jews getting revenge in World War II, and then now he's rewriting history for, you know, black slaves in America getting revenge on their masters and uh, and Django Unchained, um, and I think he's really amping up his uh, scope of what he wants to talk about where, you know, reservoir dogs is about six to 10 guys in a warehouse trying to figure out who's the rat. And now we are going into an entire culture of people, millions of Americans and how they might feel about American history and what might be cathartic for them to see this revenge. So yeah. it's, it's a it's a real it's a real turn I think in what he's he's going for as an overall theme in his movies. It is truly an epic movie. Like it's so gigantic in scope. Like the scenes feel gigantic. The colors just jump off the screen. Like Django somehow feels like a classic character. Like that we've seen thousands of times. Like it's just. I, and it's also I think the most western of his movies. So that being genre, Western genre. Yeah, he uh, gave up trying to hide that he loves Westerns, like through yeah, samurais. So. And, and he's like, oh, I could also just make a Western. Yeah, so it's it's 
almost straight out of the Sergio Leone uh, playbook, spaghetti yeah. western. Um, but we've got a kind of a different cast. And instead of glossing over slavery, it's front and center. It is the number one thing. It's a, it's a love story where uh, our, our hero, definitely our hero, uh, wants to just be in love with Brunhilde. Yeah. If I'm saying that right. And like, slavery is in the way and he has to he has to defeat it. I also think he does a good job with slavery in this movie where the movie is so fanciful and like Django wears like a bright blue suit at one point. And it's just like he looks like everyone looks so crazy, but like whenever they pick like slavery and actual slaves, it's like gritty and real. Like there's a really hard to watch scene where the like the dogs eat us like a attack a slave that ran away a fighter yeah yeah it's it's horrifying like he doesn't hold back at all yeah that's the the horror director in him yeah making me squirm and the ending shootout is like so much blood it would be like a horror movie like it's the movie's so good i didn't know i needed to watch a bunch of like slave owners get shot over and over again but until that movie i was like hold this is the best yeah, so and this is another one where you kind of have to think about his use of racial slurs, and but I think it holds up more his. I don't know if I would say excuse, but he's he kind of maintains that his characters in this film use that word as it would be natural for them to do. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I definitely want to believe that, but I don't know. I guess what's really comforting for me is that you know he's got Jamie Fox and Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, just basically lining up to do this movie. And so it isn't, I I don't think it's Quentin Tarantino writing a script so that he can just shout the N word. Um, I do think that it is a, it is giving a voice to this narrative that we've kind of swept under the rug. This horrible chapter in uh, American history is giving a voice to the victims of that. And they're, well, I guess, uh, they're still it's still oppressive to them so i would say victims of slavery yeah i go back and forth where sometimes i think it's just uh it's used so much in django and and like later the hateful eight just to shock the audience because we're not used to hearing like that word so so many times and so i feel like sometimes it is shocking to remind us like oh this is slavery slavery was real this this sucks but I also sometimes do go back and forth and be like, well, it's weird that he wrote all these movies and he is making like Samuel Jackson play like a butler who hates other black people. It's like a weird. Yeah. I mean, at the same time with that character, I see what you're saying, but I think that character is kind of in some ways the smartest character in the movie. So even he's he's almost He's the smartest and the most evil in some ways. Yeah, um, and I think it's it's very appropriate to have to have that that character on the screen in that movie. Um, what I what really bothers me, I think, most of all in in those scripts with the the prolific use of the N word, is uh, people I know uh, who I'm friends with have gone in to see Django or The Hateful Eight particularly hateful late and they come out and they'll quote it and they'll say that word or they'll sing along with Kanye and, and say the word um, <laughs> loudly in public. And it's just, it's unnerving to me, you know, the shock value that, that Quentin Tarantino is taking advantage of has come back around to desensitize. I think a large portion of Americans, uh, at least in in my anecdotal, you know, view. Yeah, it's like a he somehow is making it okay and trying to take back the word. And it goes back to what you said about Jackie Brown. Like, is he the person who should be trying to bring like take back this this word? Ideally, not. Um, yeah, I think it. My, I, I guess I've got all these conflicting conflicting feelings about it. But in the end, the way, the way I feel about it is he can direct that movie. I don't have a problem with that because he has that representation in his movies. Now reservoir dogs, I have much more of a problem with uh, from that perspective because 
like we were saying, I mean, there's just no representation of, of black Americans in that film. And the only representation is a slur that's used very negatively. Um, so that, I think that's a huge problem. And I think, you know, people watching these films, if they don't keep that reverence for the oppressiveness of that word, um, that's also a problem. But Jackie Brown, Django Unchained, I think are actually pretty positive. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, Django rides off into the sunset. And and we all With feel it, better about it. And yeah. I mean. After destroying a plantation and everything. Yeah. It's it's cathartic and it, it really brings to the front of your mind this thing that we don't talk about. So I, I think that's a really positive thing. I would wish more movies would kind of have that cathartic experience of watching something. Yeah. So kind of, like make you uncomfortable like, with yeah. this, this truth that you have to face and then just, just destroy it. Just shoot Hitler in the head and end the war, rewrite history. And it just feels good to watch. The only other movie that gave me that kind of feeling is, did you see get out this year? No, I need to, uh, please. <laughs> I'm, I haven't been to a theater in forever, but I am renting movies from the library or Redbox <laughs> and, and watching them at home. So as soon as that's on DVD available to me, I'm going to watch it. Uh, so I apologize. I can't talk about it. Oh, no. It's it's okay. But it, basically, when you're watching it, white people are the bad guys. Like, in the, just the way. in the micro and the macro. Like, yeah, they're the bad guys because, like, they're physical, like they're villains in the movie, but also like them as a society has literally held back this character, and he said to deal with this stuff. Like it's just like a I won't say anything else to spoil anything for you, but there's there's a couple scenes of the movie where you just go, ooh, that one, that part was that was very real. That was Jordan Peele hitting punching the in the gut. Yeah. yeah, it's it's very good. Well, I think uh, I think we made it quite a bit. Down the disc or the filmography. Yeah, is that about, about like where no you wanted one, to leave it, or do you want to? Do you have any last thoughts? Um, I don't really have any strong opinion. I've only saw the Hateful Eight once. I think that was fun. Oh, I forgot about that one. But I don't. I don't really. Uh, I was more excited about the the idea of the Hateful Eight than I was the actual movie. Yeah, that was it, the most disappointing movie. I mean, it was still immaculate. It still had the the staging and the mise-en-scene and the casting were perfect the dialogue was great um i just it fell flat with me and i thought it was the most uh self-indulgent of his movies where you know oh you you say i use the n-word too much here it is 190 times you think i am too violent with women right out the gate i'm gonna knock some woman's teeth out i mean i thought it kind of just felt like he was I don't know. Well, there's also this weird thing where he wrote the script and then it leaked online. And he got so upset, he said, I'm not going to make this movie. Yeah, I heard about that. And did, then he, he's like, did he change the script a lot? No, I don't think so. I think he might have changed a little bit, maybe. But then he just released it anyways. And so I think there is like this weird, like, when he says it's the hate flight, like, everyone in that movie is angry and mean. It's like one of his only mean-spirited movies. And it, it kind of is like a different take from Django, like because in this world, in Django's world, Django is a hero, but then Samuel Jackson plays like a a Union general or Union soldier who has to live in the real racist world after Django, and it's it's kind of a bummer to watch back to back because you realize nothing changed, and in 2017, nothing still changed. That is a bummer. Yeah, it's a it's it sucks. Uh, one thing I regret that we didn't talk more about was the music in his all of his movies because they're all iconic. I mean, there are there are scenes that are like the the steel wheels stuck in the middle with you. It oh, might yeah. be one of the best music ever used in a movie. That's that is. I mean, that, when I hear that song, that's all I'll ever see is Michael yeah. Madsen with a knife. It's it's such a fun song, and now I just think about murder and chopping off ears. It's just there's so much great stuff to his work. I think he is the best running filmmaker right now. And anytime he does anything, you have to like. He directed two episodes of CSI, and I really want to find those 
to watch them. And yeah. CSI, CSI sucks. And I, wanted, I mean, I, when else are you going to say, hey, I really need to see an episode of CSI? Like, that, yeah. that isn't in my vocabulary. But now yeah. that I know directed <laughs> an episode or two, it's... I'm I'd definitely going to seek it out. Yeah. And it, he's just makes a view, like appointment viewing. Like, I feel like I had to see the hateful eight, which is, and I felt like I had to see Django and I still have such fond memories of seeing all three of these movies in theater. Like I still remember exactly where I was, what happened before I watched these movies, which is like a weird thing. I can't really say with other movies. One thing I touching back on hateful eight. Um, I thought that the scene where, whether or not it was it was actually narratively true, uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character is talking about when he rapes uh, a different another character who's trying to kill him. Oh yeah, his son. His horrible sex with the Southern general, the Confederate general's son. Yeah, I I was really uncomfortable because I felt like that scene was very it glorified the rape and. While I'm okay with the revenge part of, you know, this guy's getting revenge on a guy that's trying to kill him. He's getting revenge on this Confederate general and oppression and, you know, all the whole, you know, as a whole, I thought that using rape to do it was in bad taste. And I mean, I'm using too light language. I thought it was inappropriate. I thought it was, uh, like I said, self-indulgent. He he just thinks he can do whatever he wants as long as he does it the Quentin Tarantino way in a way that's really creative and uh, visually striking. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say he missed he missed the mark there. Glorifying yeah. rape is never good. I agree. Uh, a weirdly prescient thing I think he did with that movie is he uh, the Lincoln letter about how yeah. Samuel Jackson has a fake letter from Lincoln. And just to make himself feel better, make white people actually respect him. And then at the end, you find out it actually is bullshit. And it's because in this world and our world right now, the truth doesn't matter. In 2017, the truth is what you want it to be. And it's a bummer that that's what, like that movie just like, that's why I haven't rewatched it is because I go, it's three hours and I know it's just a bummer. Like it's just a. Just a huge frowny face. And he, right. it's good stuff. I could talk more about it, but you know, it's, I don't know. I think that's a good stopping point talking about some of the Just on the Charlie Brown music, <sighs> just walking away. My dramatic <laughs> piano music. I forgot I had it on here. It's a, it's a dark world we're living in. Yeah. It's a dark world. Take care of everybody out there. Matt, thank you so much for joining me. This is a true pleasure. Come back anytime you want. Yeah, I love doing this. I love doing it so much. Uh, So I can't thank you enough. All right, well, keep it classy. All right, thanks, everybody. Uh, Always subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever it is. I think it's on Stitcher. Let me know if I can make it any easier for anybody to actually listen to this whole thing, letting people know about where it is. Uh, Also, you know, write a review. That'd be cool. Thanks, everybody. Bye.